The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day the first of days. Holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's good to see you all here on a very miserable day, uh, putting it mildly, I think. But nevertheless, our hearts are warmed by God's word, and so we welcome you this morning. We're in John chapter 5, and we are continuing to look at this event that caused Jesus to run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular. It was this healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, an event that took place on the Sabbath. And we said that there were really two things that caused Jesus to get into trouble with the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, One of those things was the fact that he was performing all of these wondrous signs, miracles on the Sabbath, which according to the scribes and the Pharisees was a violation of the law. Now, of course, Jesus didn't see it that way, and he made that point over and over again. But nevertheless, the Jewish religious leaders were angry at him for this reason. The other reason was because Jesus not only did these extraordinary things on the Sabbath, but he made some rather extraordinary claims for himself, which was also rather offensive to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, I think if you wanted to just distill it down to what was really happening here, I think it's easy to say that they were jealous of Jesus. I pointed out before the fact that uh, Jesus had never gone to any rabbinical academy. Jesus had never been formally licensed to preach by the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin. And yet when Jesus spoke, people listened to him. In fact, they said that he spoke as one having authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were incredibly jealous of Jesus. On more than one occasion, they tried to trip him up. They tried to discredit him in the eyes of the people. But every single time, Jesus would get the best of them. He would turn the tables on them. The only thing it did was make them angrier. And so we see when we get to John chapter 5 that by this point forward, there is a turning of the tide in the sense that no longer are they simply interested in discrediting Jesus in the eyes of the people. They really want to destroy him. From this point forward, they're going to plot his ultimate demise. They want to kill him from this point forward. So this is a a rather somber section of John's gospel. It seems relatively early on in the gospel narrative. I mean, this is only John chapter 5. The gospel is going to go on for 15 or more chapters. So you think to yourself, wow, they, they really turned on Jesus rather quickly. But you have to remember that fully half of John's gospel is given over to just the last week of Jesus' life. So this is probably further along in the Lord's life and ministry than you might suppose by just first reading through the Gospel of John. Nevertheless, Jesus did get in trouble with these Jewish religious leaders, and a lot of it, as I said, not only had to do with what he was doing on the Sabbath, but the claims that he was making for himself. And it's hard to read through the Gospels and not recognize that Jesus did indeed say some things that you can imagine were offensive to them. 
at least as they understood the law and the teaching of the prophets. Indeed, Jesus says some things in the gospel that, quite frankly, we find offensive today. For example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if he had just stopped right there, everything would be fine in John chapter 14. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's highly offensive in our woke culture, in our politically correct world, where we want to believe that it, it doesn't matter if you believe the Christian way as long as you believe something. It really doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe something. We would like to believe that, yes, all roads eventually lead to God. All streams eventually flow into the same great sea of faith. Oh, yes, some roads may be a little more circuitous than others. Some may be a more direct route. Some may be a detour. But ultimately, we're all going to end up in the same place. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says there's only one way to God, and every other way is a blind alley. It's a dead end. Now, how do you think that goes over in our culture today? Well, I can tell you how it goes over. There's a certain church, I shall not mention, that when they have funerals and they read this passage, they skip that last part of John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, full stop. And they don't go on to read the rest of it. Why? Well, because they find it offensive. We find Jesus' words offensive today, and the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in the first century found it to be just as offensive. But of course, that's not really the question, is it? The question is not whether or not we find Jesus' words offensive. The question is, are they true? Because if they're true, whether we find them offensive or not is really irrelevant. These are the words that we have to deal with. So what are some of the claims that Jesus makes? Because even after he heals this man on the Sabbath and gets in trouble with the Jewish religious leaders, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to make some rather extraordinary claims which only enrage them further. We took a look at these two weeks ago. We took a break last week when we had Dr. Michael Ward here. But the week before, we looked at some of these claims that Jesus makes here in these verses, 19 and following. First of all, he talks about the fact that he and the Father work together. That everything that the Father is doing, the Son is likewise doing. Now that would have been very offensive to the Jewish religious leaders who felt that they understood what God meant the Sabbath to be. And here's Jesus saying, actually, the Father and I work in perfect unity. In other words, it's my understanding of the Sabbath that is correct and your understanding of the Sabbath that is wrong. He says that he and the Father are in perfect accord on all things, verse 20. He says that as the Father gives life, and nobody would have disputed that fact, he says, so the Son gives life. Now, in many ways, that was particularly offensive. Because every Jew knew that God was the Lord and the giver of life, just as we say in the Creed. I, I mentioned that story from the Old Testament about the Syrian general who was afflicted with leprosy. And the king of Syria sent a word to Israel, to the king of Israel, that he was sending this general, this man by the name of Naaman, and the king of Israel, because there was rumor that there was a man in Israel who could heal lepers, 
The king of Israel was to heal this man and send him back. And the king of Israel tore his clothes. He was appalled by this request. He said, look, he's seeking to provoke a battle with me, a war with me. Sort of like balloons from foreign nations floating over our airspace. It it seems as though they're trying to provoke us, doesn't it? And that's exactly what he said. Look, he's trying to provoke me. Who am I to take a life or give a life that is God alone? So when Jesus says, as the Father gives life, so the Son gives life, everybody knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the Lord and the giver of life. And not only that, but Jesus rounds all of this out with the claim that he has the power to execute judgment. That he not only gives life, he does indeed have the power to take it away, that he is the judge of all the earth. Who did they think they were to judge him? All judgment had been given to him. Now you can see those are extraordinary claims. And in and of themselves, there is a sense in which they would have meant nothing. I mean, people can make all kinds of boasts, all kinds of claims. The problem here, of course, was that Jesus was capable of backing them up. Now, what that should have done is filled these men with a sense of awe. And indeed, it did to some degree. Because you'll recall that earlier in the gospel, it was Nicodemus who came under the cover of darkness and said, we know that you are a man who's come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. But by this point, their jealousy had become such a cancer in their lives that even though they knew that Jesus was a man who had come from God, they still hated him for it. You know, the Bible says there's only one unforgivable sin. And what is that unforgivable sin? It is not suicide. I'm sorry, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong on that. And you say, well, how in the world can you say that the Roman Catholic Church is wrong? Because Jesus said they were wrong on that issue. So I side with him. He said there's only one unforgivable sin. What's the unforgivable sin? It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that is the one sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking to yourself, oh gosh, I wonder, have I, have I done that? That's the unforgivable sin. That, that, that is the sin beyond which you cannot be redeemed. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, if you have any anxiety about this, let me put your hearts at ease. If you've ever worried about committing it, you haven't. So that's good news for those of you who may be a little anxious this morning. But what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin, of your need for righteousness, and that Jesus is the Savior, and you still refuse to believe. Because that's the job of the Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin and of our need for righteousness. But what if you are convicted of your sin? What if you recognize that you need a Savior? And what if you recognize that Jesus is the Savior and still you say, I don't want anything to do with him? Well, you see, then there is what? No hope. It's because you know the truth and you willfully reject it. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of. They were not guilty of doubt as to who Jesus was. Doubt is not a sin. As a matter of fact, it's part of what it is to be human. We all have doubts. 
What they were guilty of was something entirely different. They were guilty of unbelief. A willful refusal to believe. Because Jesus backed up all of these extraordinary claims with action. So they were indeed left without excuse. When he says that he was one with the Father, they had already acknowledged the fact that he was a man who had come from God. When he says that as the Father gives life, so the Son gives life, he had backed that up on any number of occasions, at least three that are recorded in the gospel. There may have been more, but we know of three specific instances in which Jesus raised somebody physically, bodily, from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler's daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and of course when you get to John chapter 11, the most impressive of all of these, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which sets the stage for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What about his claim to render judgment, to alone have the power to forgive, remit sins, set the captive free? Well, he had backed that up. You recall on one occasion he was teaching in a house, and there was a man who was lame who couldn't get in to see Jesus because the crowd was so great. They were packed all around the house, straining to listen to what the teacher had to say. And so his friends, desperate for him, took him up on the roof. I've always thought, what a perilous journey to be on a litter, and your friends are taking you up on the roof of a house. I don't like to go up there, and I'm perfectly healthy. And they're tearing, carrying him up there, and what they do is they pull away the tiles from the roof which I'm sure did not make the homeowner. There are lots of questions that someday when I get to heaven, I want to ask. And that's one of the questions I want to ask. What about the poor homeowner? They tore apart his roof, and they lowered this man down in front of Jesus as he was teaching. And Jesus, of course, knew what the man needed. I mean, it was obvious. He's on a litter, for Pete's sakes. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And he can hear the murmur go right through the crowd. Who does he think he is? What? Who does he think he is to, to forgive sins? Only God has the power to forgive sins. And we're told that Jesus, knowing the duplicity of their hearts, then said, which is easier? To say, son, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, rise and walk. And the man got up and walked. So Jesus made these bold, extraordinary claims, but he always backed them up. And what should have convicted the hearts of these Jewish religious leaders, what should have brought them to their knees, and in fact hardened their hearts all the more. It's really a pitiful and tragic picture. Not of doubt, as I said, but of willful unbelief. Jesus makes this point in John chapter 10. He was making a number of other claims for himself, and they got angry with him, and he says, look, if you don't believe my words, at least believe for the works themselves. At least I'm willing to put power behind the claims. If you don't like me, if you don't like what I have to say, at least acknowledge the works and believe for the sake of the works, and yet they still refused. So these are the claims of Jesus, and they are the claims not only that the Jewish religious leaders had to deal with, they're the claims that you and I have to deal with. 
These are the ultimate questions of life. Every single one of us is going to die one day, and our eternal destiny is predicated on how we regard Jesus Christ and his claims. How about you? Well, I want to take a look today at one of these claims in particular. Jesus made many claims, and as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to flesh them out because he'll make them over and over again. But there's one in particular that I want us to take a look at today, and that it is this claim that Jesus says that he, like the Father, is the one who gives life. Life. I want to return to this claim, if for no other reason than I think this is the one that attracts the most attention for you and for me today, this idea of life, the good life, the happy life, the fulfilled life. This is a continuous theme in the Gospel of John, this idea of life, Jesus being the giver of life. I want you to walk through some of these passages with me. So turn back to John chapter 1 for just a moment. I could just read them off, but I think it's important that we get them into our mind. I'm a visual learner more than an auditory learner. If I see somebody's name on a name tag, I'm going to remember it. If somebody tells me their name, well, it's a bit of a crapshoot, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so sometimes seeing the words help you to get them embedded in your, in your brain. So John chapter 1 begins, you know these words, the prolegomena to John's gospel, these high, soaring words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. It's right there at the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and in him, in the Word, there was life. And who is the Word? Well, it's revealed to us in verse 14, just a few verses later. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. In other words, right there at the beginning of John's gospel, we are told that Jesus is the preexistent word, the one by whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that has been made, and in him we find life. Well, now skip over to John chapter 4, to Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. Beginning at verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John chapter 10. It'll be about two years before we get there, but John chapter 10, just kidding. But John chapter 10, we're going to come back to this passage. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 7. So Jesus Again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in, and he will go out, and he will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then in John chapter 20, toward the end of this gospel, John tells us why he recorded these events. He makes it very clear that Jesus did a lot of other things that he did not record in this book. In fact, at one point, John says, if I were to record everything that Jesus did over the course of his life and ministry, the world could not contain the volumes. He said, so I admit I've been selective. But I have written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. So you see this theme of life and Christ the giver of life all throughout the gospel of John. It is a continuous refrain. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the giver of life. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that Jesus Christ brings life? Well, on a very basic level, I suppose we can say it means that Jesus Christ brings physical life. You see that if you go back to the book of Genesis, God calls all things into existence by the sheer power of his word. There's that powerful image of him creating Adam, the first man, And Adam is this magnificent specimen. When I think about that passage, I imagine a a beautiful sod statue because God, we're told, took the the dirt, the, the dust of the earth and formed this man. Imagine the perfect specimen, like the great statue of David. But we're told that there was no life in him. Until God did what? Until God breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living being. So there is a sense in which Jesus Christ, because he is the pre-existent, pre-incarnate word, the word that existed before the foundations of the earth, who was with God, by whom all things were made, there is a sense in which Jesus is the giver of physical life, yes. But more important for you and for me, what it means is that Jesus Christ is not just the giver of physical life, he is the giver of new life. He is the giver of the resurrection life. 
I love what John Newton once said. You all know that John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace, and I'm sure most of you know John Newton's story, that he was a slave trader, a notorious man. They said he was one of the worst swearers in the British Merchant Navy. He was really just a, a wretched individual. But he had a transformation. And he records that transformation in one of the most famous, if not the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But that's not my favorite quote by John Newton. My favorite quote by John Newton is he was looking back over the course of his life. He said this. He said, I am not the man I hope to be. I am not the man I want to be. I am not the man I long to be, but thanks be to God, I'm not the man I used to be. Can you say that in your own life? Can you say, I am not the man or the woman that I want to be? I'm not the man or the woman that I hope to be. I'm not the man or the woman that I long to be, but thanks be to God, I am not the man or the woman I used to be. And John Newton says he is a new man. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because his life was hidden in Christ's life, and because his life was hidden with Christ in baptism, what that meant was that as Christ died and was raised to new life, so Newton had died to self and had been reborn to the new life of grace. What happened to Jesus? Well, just think about Jesus following his resurrection. Do you ever notice, I think this is one of the most extraordinary things, that nobody recognized Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene was the first one really to meet him in the garden, and she thought he was the gardener. Now, you might say, well, she was, you know, in a veil of tears, and she was so visibly upset, she wasn't paying much attention. But when Jesus spoke to her and said, Mary, and she heard those familiar words, that voice, that tone, she immediately looked up and she said, teacher. And then there are the two disciples on that same day. Those two disciples on their way to Emmaus, and the Lord just appears by their side and sees that they're upset, they're downcast, and he asks them, what's, what's wrong? And they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about this? How Jesus, this man who was filled with power and authority, we thought he was the Messiah, but our people betrayed him, handed him over to the Romans, he was crucified and laid in a tomb. Moreover, it's been three days. And Jesus said, oh, you're so slow. You're so slow. And he began to teach them from the scriptures how the Son of Man had to die and be raised. And then he prepared to part from them and they said, wait a minute, this is fascinating stuff. This is filling our hearts with a little bit of hope in the midst of despair. Come and stay with us at our home. And Jesus says, oh, well, I'll come for a little bit. And they said, well, at least let us put a meal before you. And Jesus took the bread and broke it and all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they recognized him for who he was. It was the Lord. Or about Peter and the others following the resurrection who were up there by the Sea of Galilee fishing. And they see this shadowy figure on the, on the, on the shoreline. They could see a smoking fire. 
Peter said, who is that over there? I don't know. The person cries out to them. Peter didn't recognize them. All of a sudden, the person said, take your nets and throw them on the other side of the boat. And Peter immediately gets a little irritated. I don't know who he is. I'm out here. I'm a fisherman. And John says, we've heard those words before. Three years earlier, at the beginning of the ministry, Jesus had said the same thing. And John turns and says, it's the Lord. And we're told that they swim to shore, and there is Jesus. And they knew it was the Lord, but somehow he was different. And yet no one said, you're different. They knew in their hearts it was him. The resurrection transformed Jesus. It was the same Jesus. He still bore the wounds. He showed them to the disciples. Thomas had the opportunity to probe the wounds. It was still the same Jesus, and yet somehow the resurrection had changed him to such a degree that he was hardly recognizable. Let me tell you something. If you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what happened to him can happen to you. I've seen it over and over again with people. People that I knew at one point in their life, and years later, they've met the Lord, and when I meet them, I hardly recognize them. I mean, they look the same, but they just are not the same person. They are transformed. They are not the man. They are not the woman. They used to be. They are a new creation. When Jesus says, the Son gives life, this is what he means. It means whatever your past is, however terrible, notorious you may have been, however difficult you may have been to live with, and some of you are, and so am I, you can be different than you are. Folks, that's my only hope. When I snap at my wife, or get frustrated with the children, or want to kick the dog. I am so relieved to know that Jesus Christ can make me a better man than I am and give me new life. So when we say that Jesus is the giver of life, this is what we mean. He's the giver of physical life, yes, but... More than that, he is the giver of a resurrection, a new life, the opportunity to become a new creation, and this is an act of God alone. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, But as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ, even when you were dead, for it is by grace that you have been saved and not by works, so that no man may boast. So he is the giver of resurrection life. He is, of course, the giver of eternal life as well. John 3.16. What is eternal life? It means that life that does not end. This is why the apostle says, If it is for this life only that you and I have hope, we are of all men most to be pity. This is the problem for our culture. Many people look at this life as though this is all there is. So you better grab as much gusto as you possibly can. You only go around once, 
So get out of it everything you possibly can. Milk it for everything that it's worth. Because when this life is over, that's it. But the life that Jesus Christ offers is a never-ending life. It is an eternal life. Again, if our lives are hidden in him, what happened to him will happen to us. He died. He was raised again never to die. And the same will be true for you and for me. Death is not something that Christians have to look forward to, but nor is it something that we have to fear. It is the portal to a new and greater existence. Somebody said, what is dying like? I think I have a sense of what dying is like. Not that I've ever done it, but I have a sense of what it's like. It is like passing through a door, folks. It is like passing from one room to the next room. It happens instantaneously. There's nothing fearful about that. And that's what it's like. You just walk into another room, but this room is far more magnificent than anything you could have possibly imagined. And what's more, you are more alive then than you ever were on earth. You know, we mourn for those who have gone ahead, but let me tell you something, and I say this with authority, the authority of the word of God. If you said, I wish they could come back to me, and you gave them the option, they would not do it. Everything their hearts have longed for, everything they desire is fulfilled at that moment when they look into the face of the one who is their heart's desire, Jesus Christ. They're not coming back. They're hoping that you're going to come and join them. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. John 10, we've already looked at this passage. He is also the giver of abundant life. What is abundant life? Well, let me tell you what abundant life is not. When we think of abundance, we think of a lot of something. Abundant life does not necessarily mean long life. Now, of course, that's what we all want. We're straining to get as much time on this earth as we possibly can. Let's just go ahead and admit it. We know we should, even if we don't, eat right. We know we should, even if we don't, exercise. We know that there are a host of things that we ought to do, even if we don't do them, so that we can have what? A long life. That's what many people want. And let me tell you something. We do live longer than most people in previous generations. You do realize that, don't you? I mean, the average lifespan of somebody in Jesus' day was about 30 years. We sing that old uh, Good Friday hymn. There is a green hill far away outside the city wall, and we talk about the young prince of glory dying. Jesus was not young, according to the standard of that day. He was a mature man. Most people died in their 30s. This was true, my goodness, 100 years ago. The average lifespan of a person was maybe 50. You're an old man at 50. Some of you would be an absolute miracle. (laughs) It's just the way it is. It's all relative. Now, you could say today that 80 is the new 60, but that was not true 100 years ago. People died from childbirth. They died of all sorts of diseases, sicknesses, childhood illnesses that we don't even think are of consequence today people died from smallpox chickenpox measles mumps that sort of thing 
How many of you can remember polio? It's now a thing of the past. So many people died young. Jesus died young. The apostles didn't live to ripe old ages. They died martyrs' death. When Jesus is the giver of life, it's eternal life, it's abundant life, but that doesn't mean a long life. And, and let's be honest. What is 80, 90, 100 years in the whole scheme of eternity? A blip. Blip on the screen. That's all it is. So it's not the long life that Jesus talks about when he speaks of abundant life. It is the contented life. Listen, you can live for 100 years and be miserable because there's just something missing in your life. I've known people that are 100 years old and they are not hoping for another day. They're hoping today's the last day. They've had the long life. But they never had the abundant life. On the other hand, I know people, think about Jim Elliott. The Wheaton College graduate who went down to Ecuador and was martyred. He was quoted by Dr. Ward from the pulpit last week. He said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to keep what he cannot lose. That was a young man. His whole life was ahead of him. But he, even by that age, had discovered what many people who live into their 90s never discover. He had discovered the abundant life, the fulfilled life, the contented life. That was the thing that just awed people about Jesus. He was perfectly content. He wasn't worried. He wasn't anxious about anything. He was fully content. It's interesting to look at that word, abundant. Our English word, abundant, comes from two Latin words, ab and adere, and it literally means overflowing. Like rising waves, continuous. The Greek word is parisos. It means surplus. It is the same word, incidentally, that is used of Jesus' feeding of the multitude, where we're told he took two small fish, five loaves of bread, broke them, and by his miraculous power fed 5,000 people. And not only fed them, but we're told there was a surplus, an abundance left over. They picked up 12 baskets full of the scraps. Let me tell you something. That's what Jesus Christ wants to do for you. He didn't just want to give you life where it's sort of like, well, it's one day after another just one foot in front of the other. Press on, man. Press on. It's the grind. You must do it. Stiff upper lip. He wants to give you a fulfilled life. An abundant life. Overflowing joy. Not happiness, which is always dependent upon your circumstances, but an overflowing joy and satisfaction. And he alone is capable of doing it. If you are missing something in your life today, I often say that it's like one of those puzzles. How many of you like to do puzzles? Yes, you're very strange people. I never like puzzles, to be honest with you. I always found them very, I, I just don't have the patience for that. God bless you people that do puzzles. But, you know, when people, don't, at Christmas, please don't give me a puzzle. Uh, it's going to be re-gifted, I promise you that. But you know those puzzles where there's 10,000 pieces, and those people that just love to do that, 
They start at the corners and they fill it in and it takes them four months and they get it done. And just imagine getting to the end and discovering at the end there is one single piece that is missing. 10,000 pieces, four months of my life, where the H is that other piece. And you're going to pull up the pillow cushions from your sofa and you're going to look underneath the chairs and you're going to pull up the carpet and you're going to yell to the kids, has anybody seen that piece? Because you know that unless you have that piece, it is not complete. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is one piece that is missing from every single person's life and you can look for it anywhere. But there's only one piece that fits. You can go out and buy another puzzle. This was one of a kind. You know how it is. You'd you'd had a family vacation picture and your wife had this made into a puzzle for you. It's one of a kind. You can go out to Walmart or Kmart and buy another puzzle and try to make something fit it, but it's not going to fit. Because there's only one piece that fits there that will bring you satisfaction and completion. And I'm here to tell you that one piece is Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless. You could be successful, you could be wealthy, you could be popular, you could be beautiful, and you can still be miserable, discontent, longing, searching. And there is one who promises to give you the fulfilled, contented, abundant life, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he alone is capable of doing it. Now when we come back next week, we're going to take a look at what the abundant life looks like. What what would that look like if I had that? That abundant life, that contented, that fulfilled life. Next week, God willing, we'll come back and we'll get you a picture of what that looks like. But let me just say... You may have been churched your whole life. Many people are. They've been raised to come to church their whole life. It's a force of habit. Mom and dad made them come, so they've come. And they do derive some benefit from it. But there's still something missing. This morning, I want to encourage you to come, not to church, but to come to Jesus Christ. To find in him your heart's desire to discover the abundant life, that peace which passes human understanding, that peace which the world cannot know. Come to him. He is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we can know you, whom to know is life everlasting. If there be any here today who cannot say with John Newton, I am not the man or woman I used to be, God grant them the grace to come to you today, to give everything that they have and to lay it as tribute before the feet of Jesus Christ, that he might give in return to them the thing they long for the most life abundant. For we ask it in his name and for his sake.